0: Here, but there is a lot of material contained in the book. Honestly, I doubt we'll have time to get through it all tonight, even with nearly an hour's worth of time to do that. Jonah prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam, number two. You can see that in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 25. Just by way of some introductory thoughts about the book, there are four chapters in the book. A quick outline that I have read is running. Uh, from God, running to God, running with God, running ahead of God. It's not a bad outline, I suppose. As you work your way through the book, you could see some of that. Uh, the book is inspired as the Holy Spirit is ultimately the author of the books, 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. Our Lord validates this book in that he talks about it in the gospel accounts. He makes mention of Jonah. To that end, there has to be something ultimately about Jonah and the Ninevites that's connected to our Lord. And as we have time, we'll try to make that connection and see some comparisons between the Lord and Jonah. There are several miracles in this short book. Uh, there is the great wind, we'll read about chapter one and verse number four. There's a great fish in chapter one and verse seven verse seventeen. There is a gourd brought up in a day, a worm destroys the gourd, and a strong east wind brought upon Jonah's head. There is a lot of activity in the book. The individuals in the book, well, we'll read about God in the book of Jonah, certainly so. We'll read about Jonah, but then maybe to some lesser degree there are other characters in the book. There are the mariners that we'll read about in chapter 1. These men on the boat on which Jonah purchases a ticket and and rather um, nicely said, pays the fare. That's not a bad way to say what happened to Jonah. He indeed paid the fair, for getting onto that boat. You go a little further in the book, though, there are the Assyrians, the Ninevites, and you should know something about them. They are a barbaric people, cruel indeed, harsh people. Their kings were vicious. Uh, These were the individuals who, when they came to your town, you were the worst for it. Uh, They are said to have thrown dead bodies over the wall to induce you to give up. I'm telling you, you don't want to be like this. Sennacherib and others, the Rabshakei, and these individuals, one king boasted of the flaying of of skins from people and adorning his his, uh, palace with those dead bodies, stacks of skulls and impalings, and on and on and on it goes with regards to the Assyrians. They are the ruthless of the ruthless, that's them. Jonah knows that. And just to kind of set the stage, I have some understanding about Jonah and his reluctancy. Jonah knows God. As you go through the book, he's actually going to say that. He's going to say, I knew you. And Jonah is actually going to describe God in a very positive scriptural way. His description of God is spot on. Unfortunately, Jonah does not like God's behavior with that great description. And it's fitting in our time of racial unrest and disagreements and the like, this is a book about race, it really is. Jonah does not like the Assyrians and it's personal. He does not want God to save them. It's not that Jonah doesn't like God's salvation and God's mercy, in fact, he'll need it himself. But what he does not want is for God to extend that to them. That's going to help us understand something about the God of heaven. Now, I'm not pointing that out to make Jonah out to be a bad guy. I hope Jonah repented. I hope he did. The Bible doesn't always complete the stories for us, though. In fact, this book is going to end without the ending. We're not going to know whether or not Jonah finally was moved by God's gestures or whether or not Jonah finally came back to God and said, "Okay, I get it. I'm sorry. I hope he did. We just don't get told that. Bible doesn't always satisfy our interest and our peculiarities as we read through it. God simply finishes the account, but I'm hopeful that he did. What it suggests though is God's children are not perfect and God's children struggle. And sometimes those struggles are just this particular struggle and Jonah is hardly the only one in the Bible who has that struggle. It helps us understand the normality of humanity and our dealings one with another. Jonah struggles with it, God does not. What we'll do is we'll work our way through the book. We might just read it rather quickly or at least hit some highlights as we go through the chapters. We'll come back time allowing and begin to make some, some, some points and draw some lessons out of the text. I'm sure you know the account well, so let's, well, let's read it. It's 48 verses and I hear that you can read 66 verses in 15 minutes or less. Have you ever heard that? Never heard that? I did make it up, I did read that somewhere. But we don't have 66, we only got 48. So if you have yours, let's read together. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to the Joppa. And he found the ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof, and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship unto the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said, "Every one to his fellow, Come, and let us cast lots, that we may know whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people are thou? And he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, what hast, Why hast thou done this? For the man knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. They said unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you? For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless. The men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, "'We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, "'let us not perish for this man's life "'and lay not upon us this innocent blood, "'for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee.' So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows now the lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up jonah and jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights then jonah prayed unto the lord his god out of the fish's belly and said i cried by reason of mine affliction unto the lord and he heard me out of the belly of hell cried i and thou hearkenest heardest my voice for thou hast cast me into the deep, and in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, and all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look upon toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul, the death closed me round about, the weeds were wrapped about my head, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains, the earth with her bars was about, for the, about me forever, hast thou brought up my life from the corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice unto thee. With the voice of thanksgiving, I will pay that I have vowed, salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and... Preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed the fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he laid his, thro- laid his robe from him and he covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes and he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his noble saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God, yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord. Was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before thee unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take I beseech thee my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceedingly glad for the gourd, but God prepared a worm when the morning arose the next day and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished himself to die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. Then the Lord said, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night, and should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. It is an amazing account in our Bible, thankful that God and the Holy Spirit inspired it to for us to have a record of it. As you open up the book, one of the first things you're impressed with is that God is the one interested in the Assyrians. The Bible says the Lord, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah. What that tells us is Jonah is not doing this of his own accord. It's not as if Jonah one day said, you know what would be a good idea? As if we could turn around those mean old Assyrians. No, this isn't about Jonah. This is about the word of the Lord. One of the lessons that comes right out of the book is this. God sees the wickedness in the world. Verse number one and verse number two. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. Why? for their wickedness is come up before me. I'm not sure who thought that uh, it was a good idea to to suggest that God doesn't look upon sin. In fact, no one has ever seen more sin than God. God saw Adam and Eve in the garden. He saw what they did. God saw Cain kill Abel. He saw what he did. The, The imagination, wickedness of man in Genesis 6 was seen by God. Every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually, it grieved him at his heart. God saw what man was dead. The proverb writer says, the eyes of the Lord are in everywhere beholding the evil and the good. God sees it. It's one of the reasons that God's children are to be comforted by the fact that God sees everything. He sees the wickedness in the world. This idea that God doesn't know or God doesn't see, is, it's not biblical, God sees. In fact, God sees it for what it is, it's wickedness. But quite interestingly, wickedness doesn't make God retreat. Wickedness does not say God, God's reaction to wickedness is, I have to get away from it. That's not God's reaction. No, God's reaction is, I'd like to have that solved. I'd like to have that fixed. I'd like for you to repent so that you and I could resume our relationship. We almost in our minds see wickedness and run as if that's the solution to wickedness. While we are in no way supposed to participate in the wickedness, maybe you could share with me, how do the wicked get the gospel if the people with the gospel run away from the wicked? When you read Genesis chapter three, I'm not sure how you read it, but I'll be glad to share with you how I read it. You see, in Genesis 2, 15 to 17, God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the fruit, the fruit of the tree. He told them, in fact, that if you do eat of it, you will die. Literally, dying thou shalt die. And it is the language that evokes a violent physical death. That is the idea. You're going to die if you eat that tree. And they did. And when they did, their reaction to that, the Bible says, their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked and they sowed fig leaves to cover themselves and they hid. That's their reaction. What's God's? Interestingly, he didn't hide. In fact, the language in Genesis three is something like this. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. To where is he going? To them. It's not God that flees wickedness. It's us. And when we flee wickedness, we do exactly what Jonah did. The reason Jonah needs to go to Nineveh is found in verse number one and verse number two. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Guess what Jonah needs to take to Nineveh? the word of the Lord. Jonah, I want you to take my word to them. You know what Jonah does is he runs the other way. He flees, not toward them, away from them. And as you're reading through the book, what it reads like is very much like we might describe a checkers game or a chess match where one move evokes another move, evokes another move, evokes another move. There's wins, the losses, and along the way you go, and ultimately you get crowned. Well, listen, in this game, if you will allow that analogy, ultimately God's going to win. But Jonah sure is making moves. And every time Jonah makes a move, God has another move to make. In fact, one of the words you'll read frequently in the book is God prepared, God prepared, God prepared. These things aren't accidental. They're just not springing up. No, the, the seed doesn't just become tempestuous accidentally. The seed doesn't just start to roar because it's that time of the season. No, God does that because Jonah fled to Tarshish. And so verse number four, verse number three says, and you can see this, this, these decisions being made. Verse number three says, but Jonah rose up to flee. Verse number four opens, but the Lord sent a great wind. And it's like that all the way through the book. And one of the things you and I should learn as we go through the book about our heavenly father is it is just that. The book reads very much like a father trying to teach at this point, at least presently, a rebellious child a lesson. He's trying to get him to see it the right way. He's trying to get him to learn something. And he slowly but surely, every step Jonah makes, God makes another one, ultimately with the goal in mind to get Jonah to see it the way he sees it. To that end, he doesn't even throw lightning bolts at Jonah. No, he works with him, and he works with him, and he works with him, and even when we close the book, you still hear in God's voice pleading. I'm trying to get you to see it. I'm trying to get you to see it, but Jonah won't. God actually does that all the way through the Bible. When Adam and Eve sin, God comes to them and he asks questions of them. Not for his information, but for theirs. He's trying to get them to see. In fact, he asks a great question. Where are you? It's always a great question for spiritual people to ask, where am I? Where am I what? Not physically, but where am I in my relationship to God? Where am I in my studies? Where am I in my prayer life? Where am I in my marriage? Where am I in my parenting? Where am I? It's always a great question. And it always relates to where am I in relationship to God? Joe, uh, Adam and Eve are no longer where they once were. You see, they had never run away from God before. They had never hidden before. And Adam never uttered the, the, the expression, I was afraid. He never said that before that day because he never had to, but he does now. And God is trying to get him to see you're in a place you shouldn't be, Adam, where are you? But you read a little further in chapter four and then there's Cain and there's Abel and what does God do? He tells them what to offer and Cain does not. He accepts Abel, he rejects Cain and what does Cain do? He gets angry and God comes to him. And God says something like this, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? Implication would be this, if somebody should be angry, it should be God, but he's not. But instead of God being angry, Cain's angry. And so God asks, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? And then he adds, if you do well, you'll be accepted. We can fix it. You can make it right if you'll do well. If you don't, sin lies at the door. You'll need to conquer it or it'll conquer you. Cain doubles down, murders his brother. God comes back. Where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Obviously, yes. And so God punishes Cain. And when Cain says my punishment is greater than I can bear, God protects Cain. You get to chapter six and isn't God coming for the world despite all their wickedness, but Noah finds grace. When wickedness occurs, God draws near trying to help us to get out. Jonah flees from the presence of the Lord. Jonah doesn't just flee from the presence of the Lord. He gets on the ship and then falls asleep. What a vivid and graphic picture. Unlike our Lord who is asleep on the ship because he's safe and there is no cause for fear, Jonah is asleep because he's probably tired from running from the Lord, and I imagine you would be. Have you ever tried to run from the presence of the Lord? It would be a long run. The trouble is now about them, and I wonder, friends, you and I must be careful not to be asleep like Jonah. Now, while Jonah might be physically asleep, we could certainly be spiritually asleep, if you will. There is a tragedy happening and a very difficult time. These mariners are out there on the boat and the wind is whipping that boat around and they are genuinely scared. And what they do is they cry out to their gods. And of course, there'll be no answer. They cast lots and the proverb writer says, despite what we might think, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing is of the Lord. This is not chance and random events. No, this lot falls on Jonah precisely because the Lord would have it so. And so they ask him, who are you and where are you from and what have you done? Now imagine they're surprised when they hear, I'm a Hebrew. You mean one of those people? One of those people who have the one true living God? Is that what you mean? You're one of those people who serve the creator of heaven and earth, no idol? I'm one of those people. And so what are you doing? I'm running from him. Jonah is asleep while everybody else is steeped in their idolatrous ways with no answer for help. You see, I could be asleep in the midst of a sea of people. Looking for answers and finding none. But I could be asleep. Searching every day, trying to figure it out when the storms of life come. But I could be asleep and you could be asleep, but the world around us, their ships and their boats being destroyed, and I could be asleep. Jonah is. And when at last they get to Jonah and they ask what the solution is, Jonah gives them the truth. If you will pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will be calm. These individuals do what many individuals do, and it is certainly a very real lesson, and it is this. Instead of obeying what God said, they row hard. It's as if what people say all the time, I know the Bible says, but oh, no, I know you're telling me the right thing, but I'm going to do it this way because I'm going to double down on this thing. I'm going to just try harder. You could tell them it's not going to work. That's not God's way. In fact, God would have you do it the exact opposite way. And we just generally row harder. Not surprisingly, they don't get to shore. In fact, I imagine as their efforts increased, God's efforts increased. And they eventually reached the position that, we had best throw him overboard. Sometimes it's like that in the Lord's Church when it comes to the issue of discipline. We don't want to do it because it's not loving. We don't want to do it because we've never done it. We don't want to do it because that would upset. We don't want to do it. Friends, listen, it's the only thing that'll work when sin is among God's people. The reason to throw Jonah overboard is real simple. It'll save everybody involved. It'll save Jonah, it'll save these people. It will work because God said it. it's the only thing that will work and so eventually they do. And just as surely as it was said, the sea is calm and they then turn and praise the Lord. When God's people do what's right, it benefits and blesses the world around those people. Let your light so shine that men may see your good works and what will they do? They'll glorify your father which is in heaven. That's the way it works. Interestingly, as you read through the book, everybody in the book gets saved. Jonah does not want the Assyrians saved, but we leave chapter 1 with the mariners saved. Brings us to chapter 2. And when we open up chapter 2, Jonah is in a fish's stomach, a fish's belly. That this is absolutely true. Our Lord confirmed the same when he used it with reference to his death, burial, and resurrection. It's absolutely true. Jonah was in a fish's belly, but it's probably not like that picture we see in Pinocchio where you see a little person sitting in a big whale's mouth and they're sitting upright with a little bitty light. I don't know if you've ever seen that picture. Have you seen that? It's probably not that. Now, as you read this chapter, it seems very clear to be in someone's stomach. Can you imagine that for just a second? It's a big fish with a stomach. Jonah's probably not sitting up right. He might very well be lying down in the stomach. And if the fish, and since the fish, was big enough to swallow Jonah, I imagine it swallowed other stuff. And by the reading of chapter two, you can hear Jonah exclaim what some of the things that's in there with him. Try to imagine it's dark and it's wet and there's things touching you. It's no wonder, Jonah says, I cried. I cried to the Lord, I imagine you would. Moses fled from the serpent. Jonah cried from the fish's belly, I would too. But what Jonah says is not just that he cried, Jonah says, and he heard me. One of the profound things about being saved and the contemplation of saving others is that you and I were once the others. And it should never be forgotten by any person that was saved or that is saved that you weren't always saved. At one point, you were the person in the street being passed by Christians. At one point, you were the person at work and there was a Christian in the building, you just didn't know him and they weren't seeking you. Jonah has no interest in the Assyrians, but he sure has interest in his own salvation. And to whom should he go for that salvation? If you read through chapter two slowly and you start to count the eyes and the me's, it will overwhelm you how many times Jonah says, I, 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 and me, and me, and me. Let me ask you this. Who do you want to get to heaven? You stand in front of a mirror every morning at some point, I would imagine. And don't you want that person to go to heaven? I'm not suggesting you don't want others, but don't you want that one? Jonah has a real fixed position on salvation now. I cried, verse number two, by reason of my affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I, for thou hast cast me into the seas, and me about thy billows, and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again and i and me and i and i went down to the bottoms verse six and with the bars about me forever and yet you have brought up my life and let me ask you this friends what does that say about god god's not done with jonah god doesn't hate jonah let me ask you this those of you who are parents in the building the last time your child disobeyed you didn't you just tell them to their face i hate you didn't you? Didn't you tell them, I don't ever want to see you again? Didn't you? Didn't you sit them down and say, pack your bags, get out of my house? We're done here. Didn't you? No? What good parents you are. Nobody said that, did that. Why do we treat God like? Why is it that when God's children sin, their first thought is, well, I guess he's done with me? How is it that God's children can spend an entire day wondering, does my father still love me? I know you've parented your children better than for them to wake up at 8 in the morning and say, well, they love me now, but I I don't know about 10 o'clock. We're good now, but by six, there's no telling. And I can only imagine by eight or by 10 tonight, there's really an unsurety. I'll just, when I could, I'll just go to school and then I'll come back home and I'll just hope for the best. That maybe, just maybe, they'll let me sleep here again tonight. If I act just right, If I do everything and if I cross every T and dot every I and make sure, they might actually feed me too. I don't have the capacity to tell you how hurtful it is for me, for Christians to live like that toward God. I've talked to too many Christians who wonder about their salvation. I've counseled with too many and I've sat down with too many and I've prayed with too many who genuinely believe I'm not sure about him. I don't know if he's going to let me. Would you pray with me one more time? I was given a topic to preach. The title went like this. Tell me the truth will God really forgive me? Listen to that. Tell me the truth as if we haven't. As if somebody's lied about it. As if the concept that God would forgive is actually in doubt and says, I'm not sure, would you please tell me the truth? And don't you love the word really? Not will he forget, but will he really? If I ask your children tonight, do you love them? You think they'd say yes, despite all their failures. Why isn't God done with Jonah? Because God's not the father people make him out to be. Jonah is in express disobedience to God God said go that way Jonah went that way God said go preach Jonah said no Jonah said I cried unto the Lord and he heard me Jonah ends chapter 2 by saying salvation is of the Lord and aren't we glad that it is The fish vomited Jonah out and we enter chapter three and in chapter three, an amazing thing happens. Jonah sees the power of the word of God. Nineveh is a huge city, three days journey to get there, get around it and Jonah made it in one. He had great motivation to be moving. After all, if you spent that time in that fish's belly, you'd be motivated too when he vomited you out. God's word doesn't change and so the chapter opens by saying go preach to Nineveh the preaching that I bid thee same message God doesn't need updates God doesn't need changes or alterations just preach the word and it'll be sufficient how sufficient eight words that's the sermon I've tried to preach shorter sermons I haven't gotten down to eight words Eight words, that's the sermon. I think members would be disappointed if they came and a preacher said eight words and sat down. Maybe disappointed, I don't know. That's the sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh would be overthrown. And probably and arguably the most wicked people of that time repented. Eight words for the most wicked people. You don't have a person in your life like the Assyrians. You probably don't know someone like the Assyrians. But there might be somebody in your life you believe won't obey the gospel. They're too bad. They're too far gone. There's no way they'll obey it. There's only one way they won't, if they never hear it, if they never hear it. These people heard one sermon of eight words, and from the king to the pauper, they repented. Notice, if you will, chapter 3 and verse number 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn, repent, everyone from his evil way and the violence that's in their hands. Who can tell if God will return and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Could you look back into chapter 2 and look at verse number 2 and listen to Jonah say, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. And listen to the Assyrians say, who can tell if God will turn repent and turn from his fierce anger that we perish now, Friends, let me ask you, what's the difference between me and we? Who's Jonah crying out to? God, save me. The Assyrians say, maybe he'll turn and we won't perish. Everybody needs the gospel. And God is willing to save anybody who will repent. The only question is, am I willing to share it? You see, what you have in this book is God's willingness and Jonah's resistance. But Jonah needs the same God and the same mercy that the Assyrians are crying out to. And the Assyrians are wondering, maybe just maybe he will for us. And Jonah is saying, will you do that for me? And the very God who saves Jonah when these people repent, Bible says God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented he did not punish them I suppose the account could have ended there I suppose but it does not and we have this very strange prayer and we have God's continual working with his Son. Verse number one of chapter four says it displeased Jonah. Now the it is not God per se, it's what God has done. What displeased Jonah is chapter three, verse nine and 10. What displeased Jonah is that the Assyrians relented or repented and God forgave. God did not punish. That's the it of chapter four. It displeased Jonah. And strangely enough, Jonah wants to talk to God about it. Jonah is not willing to take this lying down. In fact, verse number two says, and he prayed to God. I wanna talk to you about this. Someone suggested that the Hebrew people had such a close relationship to God that this is rather normal for them. That they indeed saw him so close, so so theirs that to scream out and to talk to and to express and explain, rather normal for them. Seems a little odd for us and maybe not the way we would talk to God, but Jonah does. This prayer is actually an accusation. We don't know why Jonah fled in chapter one, but he tells us in chapter four, he says it in these words, Oh Lord, Was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? And he says, therefore I fled unto Tarshish. Here's the very reason I ran away, because I knew you. I knew you. Jonah's description of God is equal to God's description of himself in Exodus 34, 6 through 8. God says this very thing about himself. And so I suggest that Jonah's description is spot on. You are gracious. You're merciful. You're slow to anger and of great kindness. And you repent of the evil that you would have done to them. Jonah's conclusion about that is not spiritual or healthy. His conclusion is now let me die. I don't want to keep living if that's not how you're going to behave toward other people. Now in chapter 2 when I needed that from you, thank you. I needed you to be gracious. I needed you to be merciful. I needed you to be relenting and I needed you to save me. Thank you, however, now I don't want you to do that for other people. And if you're going to do that for other people, then kill me. I would rather not live in a world where you're gonna forgive wicked people. Says a lot about Jonah but it says a lot about God because God doesn't throw Jonah away still. No, when you read about the, the, the gourd, the plant, and you read about the sun and the worm, all of those things, four, five, six, seven, eight, God is still trying to reach Jonah. These are object lessons to get to Jonah. And so he says, this gourd came up in the and you were thankful for it, it cooled you off. Now, while Jonah's out there, he's watching the city to see it fail and God comforts him, gives him some shade. Jonah says, thank you. This is a great seat. I know they're going to mess it up. I just can't wait until they do, and I know after that you'll be able to get them, and then God takes away the plant, and Jonah is angry, and you can hear the pleadings of God. Doest thou well to be angry for the plant? You can hear Jonah. I do well to be angry. But Jonah, you didn't do anything. You didn't plan it. It came up in the night. It went away in the night. Why are you angry about that? It's what God says last. It's what God says last that gives you some insight into the God of heaven. Verse number 10. After Jonah refuses to turn, even at this late point, verse number 9, I do well to be angry. The Lord said, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for which thou hast not labored, neither made it grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night, and should not I spare Nineveh? God's description of Nineveh is rather kind and gives us some insight into the way that God sees the world and how intimately he sees it. God refers to Nineveh as a great city. It's scale. It's a great city, Jonah, shouldn't I spare it? But not just the city. No, he says inside of that city, there's more than 100,000 persons. You might understand that as children, we're not counting adults. This description of not being able to discern your left hand from your right hand is a description in scripture of children. These are people who are so young, they can't tell the difference between their hands. There's 120,000 children in there. We're not counting the adults, Jonah shouldn't I spare? it? But you'll note the last little expression that God gives is, and very much cattle. It's not that God is overly concerned for animals, but they're down there. There's living stock. There's animals down there, Jonah. There's this great city down there, Jonah. There's 120,000 children in there, Jonah, and they repented, Jonah. Shouldn't I forgive them? It would have been great for us to hear Jonah say, yes, Lord. We don't get that verse. I hope he did it would have been great if he did but i don't know that he did time we have remaining what are some lessons we can draw quickly let me share a few number one we talked about it at the beginning god sees number two you cannot flee from god jonah tries several times in chapter one the expression is had he fled from the presence of the lord psalm 139 7-12 through 12 tells us that's an impossibility we cannot flee from the presence of the Lord. He is there everywhere. Number three, God seeks to save. This entire book ultimately is about God's desire to save. The mariners, Jonah, the Assyrians, the children, the cattle, literally everything in the book gets saved. And your father and mine wants to save. Ezekiel 18, 23, God says, I have no pleasure that the wicked perish." And if you read that chapter, what you'll find is God expressing his desire that wicked men will turn from their wickedness and live and not perish. You can hear it in Paul's language in 1 Timothy 2 and verse number 4 that God is not willing that any should perish. He would that all men would come and be saved. 2 Peter 3 9 says the same thing. God is a God that seeks to save. This book illustrates that very well. God's character can't change. You you see, the disposition that God has is simply goodness. And God doesn't meet that out indiscriminately or or in some way he he hoards that from some but won't give it to others. That's not the way God is. And so when Jonah says to God, I knew you were this way, he is that way. And since he is that way, then anybody who will repent, he'll forgive. Anybody who will repent, he will forgive. There is nobody beyond the purview of God's goodness if they will repent. God can't change his character. God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. Jonah wants God to save him and then destroy the Ninevites if they both repent, and God can't. Number five, number six, God's God's care for his children is evidenced throughout the book. God is trying to work with Jonah much the same way you try to work with your children. It's good parenting when you teach your children what to do properly and then you give your children an opportunity to fulfill what you have requested and then you follow up with your children if they fail with more instructions and trying to guide and direct. It's good parenting. And if at some point discipline by way of correction is needed you administer that even-handedly and justly for the cause and the occasion with explanations to follow and then you move on from it that. that's good parenting and if you're doing that at home your children will one day rise up and call you blessed and you they will be thankful and and you'll be better but it's surely a process why not with God God is working with his child We almost have God in this position that you just mess up one time and he'll end you. You can be his child, yes, but he is on the verge, always on the verge of just about waiting to, it's almost like we have God lean and saying, I wish you would, I can't wait till you do. What a terrible concept of the God of heaven. And how contrary to scripture, there's not a passage in the Bible that suggests that, not one. There's not even the hint of the suggestion that God wants his children to fail, eagerly hopes that they do, longing to punish them and just cannot wait. You just can't find, you need another book for that, but you won't find it in here. And far too many of God's children live like that's what the Bible teaches. I know. Among every faithful congregation, I need to meet that out and balance it by saying, God doesn't want you to take advantage of his goodness and God doesn't want you to sin. And God doesn't want, but see, you already know all of that. What we don't know is the other part. We spend so much time saying that, that it leads us to this error and this is erroneous. God loves his children more than you love yours. And God is a better parent than you are. And if you are loving yours with kindness and goodness and graciousness and forgiveness, you learn that from him. And how dare people suggest that the God of heaven is a bad parent and is waiting to punish his children indiscriminately when the Bible so convincingly teaches otherwise. Well, that's a soapbox for me, maybe you can tell. Number seven, God's, uh, number eight, God's word must be preached. The word of God must be given to the lost. Uh, And without the word, they can't be saved. Number nine, fighting God is futile. Jonah is going to fail. Saul of Tarsus failed. The wicked will fail. Nobody can defeat God. Satan fails. God cannot and will not lose. Number 10, God wants us to be like him. You know, ultimately, the book is God trying to get Jonah to his side and to see it his way. And he wants the same thing for us. There's lost people in the world, God wants us to see that. God wants them to be saved, God wants us to see that. Doesn't matter who they are, God doesn't want us to be bothered by that. Whosoever will let them come, that's God's disposition. In fact, as you read this book, it's kinda hard not to compare Peter's language in Acts chapters nine, 10, and 11, where Peter finally learned through the vision, "'I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, "'but in every nation, he that worketh righteousness "'is accepted of him.'" god will save anybody that will repent they just need an opportunity from those who are saved number 11 we need to be empathetic to others number 12 god's children struggle and sometimes god's children struggle with racial issues that's just the truth of the matter jonah is hardly the only one we just mentioned peter and didn't he preached a great sermon in Acts chapter 2 To you, to your children, all that are far off, even as many Lord our God shall call. It's true. Needed the vision three times in Acts chapter 9. Finally got it in Acts chapter 10. I got it. I perceive it. I get it. I understand it. What some people don't read is Peter was hardly the only one because in chapter 11, he was accosted by the Jews for going to speak to a Gentile. And in Galatians chapter 2, he succumbed to it and took Barnabas and others God's children struggle with race issues they have they do to this very hour what's the solution change our hearts to be like God God saved the Assyrians because they repented anybody who is lost is a candidate for the gospel and anybody who obeys the gospel is my brother and my sister would you pray with me Our Father in heaven, it is with thanksgiving in our hearts that we come before your throne, praising you, Father, for your greatness. For you are the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth, the giver, the sustainer of life. Father, you are so wonderful and matchless and mighty, and we're so thankful for the creation of the world, for the sharing of your image, for your kindness and your mercy, for your plan to save us before you made us, and for the Christ. Not simply for the Christ on the cross, but for the Christ who rose from the dead, sits at your right hand, triumphant and victorious over sin and death. Father, thank you for loving us while we were sinners and more so while we are your children. Father, bless the congregation here. Bless each member. Bless our hearts. Bless our minds. Father, and may we learn from a book like Jonah. May we learn your goodness and your care. And may we see the struggle of one of your children and how you worked with him. May we see your forgiving spirit for the Assyrians and your longing, Father, to have Jonah see the world and others the way you do. Father, thank you for this book and thank you for your love and for the example of Christ and thank you for the gospel and for the church. And Father, we pray that you will bless us and strengthen us and give us the courage and the, the rightness of mind to behave like you, to love one another as you have loved us and to seek and to save those who are lost. To you be all glory, honor, and praise, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.